0: love this podcast support this show through the Acast supporter feature it's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment just hit the link in the show description to support now
1: welcome to starship sofa part of the district of wonders network featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 421... I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. As you can as you can hear, I'm not firing all all cylinders. I need a I need a man flu ravaged us. There, I need a sucker fisherman's friend. <laughs> but I'm going to carry on like a trooper. Here we go. First up, we have an interview with Jason Kebler, which is just fascinating. It's all about a state of sleep and. How close we are to achieving state of sleep and could it be used in the future, possibly for space travel? Do you know, it's, Red Dwarf had it. Why not the real world? Then we have the main fiction, which is Namua and the metaphor, which is a, just a fantastic story narrated by Julie C. Day. That is all coming in today's Sure, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now before we get into all those little things there, I if you're not a member or you're not kinda into the newsletter, I put a little shout on the newsletter that we're gonna be starting something called Sanctuary, which is just like a bit of a haven, a bit of a respite for anyone that's kinda going, going through you know, hard times, be that kinda well any hard times, mentally hard times, physical hard times, you know, suffering pain, loneliness, anything. In that kind of scope, but that's a big scope, there's a feel we're going to be setting up a thing called Sanctuary. And if you want to get involved with it, just drop us, a, drop us an, an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. I'll put you in touch with Robin, and Robin's going to facilitate it all. Robin's the kind of lead on this. And we're going to kind of work in and, and just do some feature posts, maybe the odd little podcast there, and, you know, have a little place to, to kind of hang out, you know, people who are part of the District of Wonders, you know, who listen to it, but who, you know, just sometimes go through a, a kind of a bit of a bad spell. And the reason why I do it is, honestly, there's so many emails I get where people do go through, you know, like, you know, the kind of offload and let us know how sometimes Starship over gets them through a day, do you know what I mean? And that's so humbling, you know, and it'd be nice just to have somewhere collective so we can kind of help each other. Do you know what I mean? Because I certainly need, you know, every now and again, I'm always, to be quite honest, laying into Robin about how much, you know what I mean, how kind of my little kind of wars and fears and stuff like that, you know what I mean? So we thought we'd kind of do this and it'd be nice. So if you want to just, even just like get the newsletter, because we're going to send out some newsletters on just, just for that kind of topic, you know, if you want to just be involved in that, drop us an email starshipsover at com, and we'll take it from there. So, First interview, I had a lovely chat with Jason Kebler. Jason works for Vice and he's got his own podcast on there, Motherboard Radio Motherboard. And Jason wrote this great article on the state of sleep. You know, this kind of mythical thing that, you know, we would use to go to the stars, you know, this kind of idea of, you know, the, the nearest galaxy is so far away. Even just crossing our galaxy, do you know what I mean? Would state sleep, you know, is technology there, or in a few years' time to get to state to sleep up to scratch, up to speed, so we can do this? And Jason just did this such an in-depth, you know, where we are now, what we did, you know, and it was it was fantastic. So have a listen to myself and Jason Kevlar, fascinating interview. Jason, then was there really? like, a meeting of of 15 top scientists to discuss, you know, humans, you know, put them in the cryo-sleep.
0: There was, yeah. I am in the EU uh, earlier this month, 15 uh, scientists from across a lot of different disciplines met to talk about how we might make humans hibernate.
1: That's just a, you know, a a marvellous kind of thought. I mean, we all know, you know, like, the films 2001 Aliens and my favourite, you know, Red Dwarf. But... Do you think cryo is it? you know, a, a possibility? How would they actually achieve it?
0: Yeah, so um, I kind of went into writing this article thinking this could never possibly happen. And the more I learned about it, the more I thought, oh, my God, it's not an if, it's like a when. And it's maybe, I mean, it's not going to be tomorrow, but it, it, it's not too far off either. Um, and the plan is to basically cause humans to hibernate just like uh, a bear hibernates in the winter. And so a lot of the research right now is taking place on rats and pigs, which are animals that don't hibernate, but uh, scientists are trying to make them hibernate. And the way that it's working is they are basically working on the animal's A1 receptor in the brain, which uh, is responsible for regulating sleep. And they've found that this receptor can be induced. You can induce hibernation by acting on it uh, with a drug or an IV. Um, And then when you stop acting on it, the animal wakes up and it's totally fine.
1: You also mentioned, because your article was honestly just fascinating, it just kind of, you know, makes you kind of gaze and wonder, do you know if there's possibility. But you mentioned a, a technique called, is it therapeutic hypothermia? Is this an actual medical practice then?
0: It is, and it's used fairly regularly, and this was another thing that surprised me. Um, it kind of grew out of a few accidental findings where – um like a scientist working in the Arctic got stuck in, in ice uh, like got trapped under the ice. um, And basically her, she went into a state of hypothermia and they thought she should have died, but she didn't. And the reason that is, is because basically the blood flow slows down, your metabolism slows down, everything slows down. um, And they were able to rescue her and warm her up before, uh, you know, her body died basically. Um, And so what, we do at hospitals is we literally put like packs of ice around patients or we put a saline solution uh, in through their nose and we cool them down uh, you know five or six degrees into a state of uh, hypothermia and the we do this in heart attack and stroke patients and we do it uh, to basically give the body time to heal itself uh, before they run out of oxygen
1: so are these people still conscious though are they
0: Uh, They put them under. And uh, actually, so it's interesting because uh, therapeutic hypothermia and human hibernation are kind of uh, different means to the same end, but they work completely differently. Um, In hibernation, the body naturally cools itself down. And with uh, therapeutic hypothermia, we are artificially cooling the body down and the body really wants to warm itself up. So what happens is uh, the patients shiver a lot. and uh the way that we inhibit that is by basically giving them morphine or like very heavy narcotic so there's a lot of side effects with uh with therapeutic hypothermia and that is why we're trying so hard to do uh this cryosleep type thing
1: you know what- it's, you know, you're saying it's like it's a medical, you know, reality there, but it must have to be like regulated so much because, you know, hypothermia does lead to death. Do you know what I mean? That's a, that's a kind of fundamental process there. Cause I would have thought it would just been too dangerous to go anywhere near that, you know, stage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they only do this in patients who are otherwise going to die for certain. Um, it's kind of like a last ditch type effort. Um, and they actually don't call it therapeutic hypothermia anymore. Now they call it targeted temperature management because they do regulate it very closely. Um, and they they take the, I, I forget exactly uh, how cold they get the body, but it's only like uh, six or seven degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so, you know, two or three degrees Celsius. Um, and yeah, you can only do it for up to 72 hours at the very longest. Any longer than that is almost always fatal.
1: You know what we're talking about? animals hibernation then jason are we have we this might be a kind of bit of a kind of childish question but have we ever put an animal that doesn't hibernate into hibernation
0: yeah that's actually the cutting edge of this research um the italian scientist i talked to for my article uh, matteo seri was the first scientist to ever put uh, a rat into a state of hibernation um and rats don't normally hibernate uh, mice sometimes do depending on the species of mouse um, so when he was able to do that that was kind of uh, the cutting edge uh, science here and that was two years ago and he is now working on pigs and there's now a researcher at the University of Alaska who's also working on pigs.
1: I mean what would it take I mean I don't know if you even be know this question what would it take to kind of get a human into this position I mean like more like the red tape paperwork do you know do we have to go through a process or would the is there a kind of a process where we could actually volunteer go into this kind of, you know, put them into hibernation or hurry to hibernate hibernation?
0: Yeah. I mean, as with anything medical, uh, there's going to be red tape. There's going to be more trials. I would assume that if the big tests are successful, they'll try on monkeys and then maybe they'll try on uh, sort of like end stage patients who, uh, you know, maybe heart attack or stroke uh, patients who have no other options left. Um, but the interesting thing is, when I talk to these researchers who are looking into it, they're saying, "I want to try this. This sounds awesome." And in their <laughs> in their research, they like don't find any sort of reasons to suggest that this would be overly dangerous. Like, uh, there's no reason why you would put someone into a state of hibernation and they would never wake up, because basically you would just stop uh, stop supplying the drug, the inhibitor to the uh, to that neuron in the brain and from every experiment we've seen so far, that should be sufficient to wake someone up.
1: How far do you think we are then, Jason? You know, how far down the line do we need to get before we can actually use this hibernation, you know, technique for for space travel?
0: Yeah, uh, it's hard to say. Uh, So, I mean, I've been talking pretty optimistically, but honestly, we don't know a whole lot about hibernation in general. Uh, We know how to induce hibernation, which is a huge, huge finding but we don't really know what it is. We don't know um, exactly what the body goes through while it's in a state of hibernation. Um, That's another part of uh, Mateo Seri's work is he finds that most animals actually wake up from hibernation in order to sleep because they're actually getting sleep deprived while they're in a state of hibernation, which kind of suggests that, yeah, suggests it's not like this big resting thing. It's kind of, uh, but we don't really know what it is. Um, And so, I mean, maybe you go into a state of hibernation and you're somewhat conscious or you're dreaming or I have i have no idea. We have no way of knowing. And so, uh, I mean, I, until we figure out the answers to some of these questions, I don't think we're going to try it on humans. Um, but I do get the sense that we're solving these problems quite quickly. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of interest from the ESA and also from NASA. So uh, it is becoming a, a priority, I would say.
1: Well, w- what then... Is the, is the major benefits of putting, say, a human in to cry asleep for, just say, for space travel. I mean, surely it's not just to make the journey go quicker, is it?
0: Uh, I mean, that's part of it. There was talk, you know, when, um, I guess it was NASA or someone else, may have been one of these um, kind of private entities that was trying to fly to Mars, was saying, you know, we want a married couple to go because we want someone two people who aren't going to kill themselves, kill each other, uh, you know, on this nine month journey. And so boredom is a real consideration here, um, you know, kind of being cooped up in something. But, uh, the, the bigger concern is, uh, the life support, uh, mechanisms. And basically, as you know, space travel is very expensive and the big issue is weight and mass and, uh, in a state of hibernation, you, in theory, shouldn't need as much water, you shouldn't need as much food, um, and you don't need to use the bathroom. So you can basically have a huge mass reduction if you're able to put someone asleep for, you know, nine months at a time.
1: Is it looking then, you know, cry sleep. is it looking positive, Jason, out there, you know, with these – and yes, these techniques are kind of, you know, a, a little bit far away from now, but are we – looking like this could be you know say 100 years time a reality
0: yeah I mean I would say yes 100 years seems certain I I, I mean obviously there's a lot of unknowns and there may be some you know physiological reason why it's not possible but uh, there's been a lot of uh, you know progress in just the last five years in this so um, I mean I I, if I had to guess and I know people love timelines I mean I would say by 2050 or something, you know, who, who knows. But uh, there, there's there been a lot of, I'm optimistic, and everyone I spoke to was optimistic. I'll just say that.
1: That's, that's that's what I like. Which way would you think, you know, mankind and humanity would go? Would they go down, the the say, the cryo-sleep method of getting to a, a far star system, or would they go down the kind of, the habitat, you know, take your own kind of Garden of Eden world, you know, like the Valley Forge, Silent running ship.
0: Yeah, I mean, I still think that a generation ship makes the most sense for, like, a, you know, somewhat going to another solar system or star system. Um, you know, we can, best case scenario, put someone into a state of hibernation for a few months, I would say. Most of the proposals right now are, you know, you go to sleep for a month, you wake up for a couple of days, go back to sleep for a month, um, that sort of thing. So, I mean, if we're talking... Well, Voyager like just left the solar system. So I, I think we're going to both need much better propulsion and we're also going to need some sort of generation type, you know, traveling planet sort of thing to, to really leave the solar system. But I think, you know, hibernation may play a role in that. And I think hibernation will certainly play a role if we decide to go, uh, you know, someplace like Europa or, you know, another place in, in our own solar system.
1: The way you're talking there is, you know, there's kind of it's. It's not that far away. Yeah,
0: I mean, it, it is. It's science fiction, but you know, the, it's science for a reason. That there's a reason why it's kind of a trope that's used in all of these uh, in all these sci-fi flicks, and it's because there is there's some truth there, and we're we're really getting we're really making some progress. Um, as I said, not tomorrow, but there is real research going into this.
1: Just so it all gets it all gets sorted out, and we, we do cry sleep. Would you do that? Yeah, I would
0: definitely do it, uh, especially here on Earth. I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of potential medical uses for this. Uh, there's interesting work being done on uh, kind of how the neurons in your brain uh, both lose connection when you go into a state of hibernation and then quickly uh, regenerate themselves when you come out. So there's talk about it being potentially useful for Alzheimer's patients. There's talk about it being used for trauma patients. Uh, you know the body is just kind of more resilient when it's in this state. And so it seems, it seems useful. Um, I don't, I, I'm kind of split on whether I want to go to space. Um, I quite like it here on Earth, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but I, the, the hibernation and cryosleep, I'm, I'm all for it.
1: I mean, I think you've made a, a great point there. You know, we, we talk in space and everything like that, do you know what I mean? But the realities of it, it, it'll probably be used more for, you know, medical here on Earth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The scientists I talked to said that um, it is basically going to become a new branch of medicine if they're able to pull it off, just because there's so many potential uses for it. Um, It's kind of, it's just like a pause button more or less. And, you know, there's so many medical conditions that where time is of the essence. And, um, you know, if you can slow that down, slow down the body's natural processes, it could be really useful.
1: Jason, it's fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. A huge fan of your
0: podcast, and uh, we have our own. If listeners enjoyed me talking, I host it. It's called Radio Motherboard.
1: Right? Oh, well, I'll, put, I'll certainly put a link on there as well. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, thank you very much. God. It just—I guess—is excited. You know what I mean? Especially, no, no. It's, so it's you must awesome. have had to—you must have had to do a, a bit of because it was an in-depth. You know, I've kind of come over a little bit flipping edges, but it was an in-depth article that's what you know what i mean it was kind of when i started reading it i was thinking oh it's going to be like a light-hearted you know kind of take and then i was thinking no no i think jason's done his homework he had it it got right into it
0: yeah yeah no so i mean i've seen a few articles about it before um and they, they were all pretty decent but uh, we were doing i guess this theme week we call them uh, sleep theme week uh so it was all things sleep so i did have quite a while to work on it um longer than i have for a normal article and i'm glad it glad it came out well
1: oh it was excellent excellent yeah. well thank jason you. hovey we might get you back on another time if i see a nice um bit of writing there from your squire oh absolutely thank you so much oh that's lovely jason thank you so much all right have a good one take care Bye. there you go Jason said as well, and I've subscribed to it straight away. Jason hosts Radio Motherboard, part of the kind of device network there. And I'll put a link on in the show notes if you want to go over there and subscribe. Because Jason's actually, it's, there's a lot of things just kind of interwoven with what's kind of Starship Sova's doing, you know, the the interviews I'm doing and all, everything like that. And hopefully I'm going to get Jason back on because in a way, you know, like sleep, it's like what we've talked about, you know, there's there's a while to go before we kind of, put someone right under for that kind of journey. And I was, in the end, I was like throwing out all sorts of questions. And, you know, give him his due, Jason was answering them like spot on, you know, because some of these questions you can't answer. Do you know what I mean? But it's just a, it's the child in his wants to know these things. And like I say, Jason was there just answering these questions. So a big thank you to Jason. And like I say, we'll try and get Jason back on as well. So next up is the main fiction by Fiona Mua called Metaphor. This story was originally published in Interzone magazine, a fantastic magazine. Fiona Mua is an anthropologist at the University of London by day and an SF writer by night. Her previous credits include fiction and Puri amongst others in Interzone, Asimov's Dark Horizons and Unlikely Story, three stage plays, four audio plays and four Guidebooks the Cult TV Series, most recently a two-volume guide to Battlestar Galactica. One of the quintessential brilliant TV shows out there. I'll put a link on and pop over and say hello to Fiona come over there. Narrated by Julie C. Day. Julie's Fiction has appeared in such venues as In The Zone as well, Podcastle and Resurrection House. Anthology. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast program and a Master's of Science in Microbiology from the University of Massachusetts. You can find Julie's latest story, Florida Miracles, in Interzone 261. As well as narrating, she also hosts the Small Beer Podcast. Put a link onto that as well if you want to go and to subscribe to the Small Beer Podcast. Julie, thank you so much. So... The Starship silver <laughs> oh man, I need another fisherman's friend. Excuse me. The Starship Sulva is very proud to present The Metaphor by Fiona Moore.
2: The Metaphor by Fiona Moore. It's back. It's back. I know it's back from the compulsive itch in my head. So I throw off the fur blankets gasping at the feel of cold stone floor on feet, while wondering where the hell the rug had got to. Then hurry into my woolen underclothes, my equally woolen trousers, hat and sweater. Then, finally, an outer layer of fur parka, trousers, hood, goggles, neck warmer and gloves. I grab my rifle, though God only knows why. It's useless against it. And, when I'm doing the rounds, I've got no time to go hunting. But I sling it over my shoulder anyway. I guess it makes me feel better. I tell myself it's in case I get a chance to bag a rabbit on the way. Out into the knee-deep snow in the deserted village. Stone cottages, whitewashed, thatch, dark windows. No smoke in the chimneys. The sky overhead is black. No stars, though someone's conveniently provided a moon. Earlier, I'd heard the scrubbing, whistling sound of wind driving snow, but I guess it must have blown itself out because there's nothing but a few snowflakes drifting around now. I feel it even more strongly now that sense of foreboding, the compulsion to keep moving. I shrugged the strap of the rifle back and set off along the trail, which was clear and well-trodden yesterday, but I guess it was a pretty big storm, to the first tavern. I get there without much trouble and let myself in. Nobody there, of course, and the tavern itself is pretty basic and uninviting. Four or five trestle tables, worn dark brown, with benches, a few tin cups scattered artistically around the tabletops. Pay attention to the tin cups. They'll be important in a minute. There's a bar, equally crude, with a few indefinite bottles on a shelf behind it, a piece of rag for cleaning. I get behind the bar, look around. I can't find what I'm after at first, so I start opening drawers and boxes, Finally, I find it. A rough, ugly pumpernickel loaf and a small pottery dish of salt. I take them out, put them on the table. I arrange the cups. There's five. Around it, in a neat pentangle. The pentangle's actually not important, I've discovered over the years, but it gives me a sense of satisfaction. Job well done. I take one of the bottles from behind the bar. Again, I've discovered that the content isn't important. But my little ritual here is to use each bottle in turn, starting from the left, and fill the cups about a third of the way up. Survey the table. Okay. Not bad. Let's hope it likes it. Some nights it only needs one tavern and it's happy. I feel it go... Feel the urgency, the obsessive compulsion subside, and I go back to bed. But I don't think this is one of those nights. Out of the tavern and back on the trail. It's a longer walk to Tavern 2. For a while I tried to come up with names for them, but none of them ever stuck. Not even when I named each of them after exes of mine. Forgotten names now. "'almost forgotten faces. "'No clues from the landscape, either. "'No creaky signs over the door with a double-headed eagle, "'or a lion, or a set of compasses. "'I wish somebody had taken the trouble to include a bit more detail. "'I can't seem to do it myself. "'I can decorate my own cottage in the village fine, "'but anywhere else the decor just won't stick.' I think it's part of the same mechanism that keeps the bottles topped up and the interiors dust-free. A kind of reset button. Which would make sense. Snow crunching under my feet, steamy breath hanging in the air, feeling of warm wool and fur on my body, and the occasional random sound of a branch cracking or snow falling. No animal noises. There never are when I'm doing the tavern round. Be nice to hear an owl or something, just for variety. The second tavern looks a lot like the first, like someone took the basic design and just changed some details, put the door on the other side, changed the color of the thatch, and made the windows a bit bigger, which would also make sense. I don't think they spent much money "'on this part of the world. "'I let myself in again. "'I know better than to knock by now. "'The interior is also a lot like the first tavern, "'only nicer looking. "'The tables are smaller and more artfully placed. "'The scattered cups are pewter, "'with an elegant matte finish. "'And there are one or two plates lying around, "'also pewter. "'Same routine. "'Find five cups.' There are always five, even if you have to hunt. Place them in the usual little pentangle, then behind the bar for the bread, salt, and liquor. The biggest problem facing the modern worker in the services industry, and increasingly given the rise of virtual product in the manufacturing industries, is what industrial anthropologists have termed Process Alienation I've probably been here for a long time. I say probably because I don't know how long, but I think it must have been a long time because my memories of the time before the village have faded to the point where they don't seem normal anymore. As to how I came here, I've narrowed it down to a few hypotheses. Hypothesis one is this that one day, the catastrophe that the news was always predicting came. I can't remember specifics, and I don't think they're important. Global warming, fallout, global freezing, mass sterility, plague, lack of water. Take your pick. Whichever explanation or combination of explanations suits your particular theory, human reactions were equally predictable. Some people going into churches or up mountains or whatever. Some trying to find a last-minute solution. Like scientists in a ropey old movie. Some trying to leave a legacy. To whom? Finishing off their books, their great works, their art, their sculptures. Seems strange to me, but then I remember hearing about a scientist in Auschwitz who spent his time in the camp before he died, "'desperately finishing and arranging to have smuggled out his last great book. "'Whatever keeps you from gouging your own eyes out, I suppose. "'Some, lots, actually, decided to go in for hedonism. "'Games, food, sex, all taboos out the window "'now that there was no point in enforcing them anymore.' like a terminally ill child who is told he can have anything he wants before he dies, knowing that whatever he asks for, however dangerous or damaging, it won't be any worse than... Sorry. Got a bit melodramatic. It gets boring here when I'm not chasing around the taverns, so I've started elaborating the hypotheses, turning them into stories to tell myself... I didn't think I had the imagination to come up with metaphors, but I suppose in situations like this, you can surprise yourself. As a distraction, I concentrate on arranging the bread. It's nice bread, a sort of light rye. The salt and the liquor. Third bottle from the end this time. It's green and smells a bit like chartreuse. In their pattern, admiring it and then getting out the door as fast as possible, centering myself through quick strides along the trail to the third tavern. Anyway, back to Hypothesis 1. This is the story where I used to be a brilliant scientist, that I was involved in a project to save people by transferring them to another reality. Myself and my heroic colleagues toiled for years to find a reality that was accessible, that we could send people to. I can see myself as a scientist, less muscly than I am now, maybe, after all these years of running through the forest, dressed in neat clothes, short hair, big protective goggles, lab coat, going to university receptions and having a group of worshipful graduate students who say clever things in classes or over delightful rare ales in the charming pub the research team had adopted. Long nights with driven colleagues. Pizza and coffee as we tried to work out how to create or link to a new reality. And it must be real. Out here I can feel the snow. Feel the cold air on my face. The aches in my muscles as I run. The itch in the wool. I can feel hunger, too and satisfaction. I can enjoy eating, and masturbation, and all the other things I did before. I only have my own word for it that this isn't real. That, and a vague conviction that if this were real, there'd be more people, and less unseen things, which can only be defeated by arbitrary domestic rituals. So it might be an alternate reality. But then I get to the question of where the other people are. Process alienation, as a concept, is a development from Karl Marx's idea of the worker being alienated from the product of his sick labor. However, service sector and virtual product workers have been found to have increasingly higher levels of alienation than workers in conventional labor, due to the absence of tangible physical product or outcomes at the end of their work, despite its frequent, dull, and repetitive nature. I have no recollection of how I got here, so that's no help. I speculate that maybe I was the heroic volunteer or the unlucky short straw drawer who wound up being the first to go through the stargate or into the space capsule or whatever, and the disaster caught up with everyone else before they could send the others through? Or maybe I was the only one able to get through, that I've got some mutant gene that let me travel between worlds where nobody else could. Or maybe... I wound up going to the wrong world by mistake, and my late-night colleagues have written me off as an experimental casualty. None of these narrative possibilities satisfy me. I can still feel it, and I think it's getting closer. A feeling of dread, of encroaching darkness. It makes me think of the scream "'for no reason I can really articulate. "'Just something about the way the colors "'and the figures in the background "'add up to some kind of formless panic. "'It feels like, well, "'it feels like something "'I remember from the time before, "'strangely vivid, "'when I got stuck alone in a house "'in the dead of winter "'with no heat and no hot water.' "'a week before the army dug me out. "'That feeling of cold you can't get rid of, "'no matter how long you soak in a tub "'of near-boiling water afterwards. "'I remember that feeling keenly, "'even now that I've forgotten "'how I wound up trapped in the house, "'or what the weather event was that caused it. "'A freak storm? "'Something normal? "'The catastrophe supposedly creeping across the earth?' That sensation always pervades this village. But when it starts to hit some kind of peak, that's when I know I've got to do the taverns. The third tavern is even better looking than the second. Well made, of stone, not plastered logs. I let myself in again. The tables are oak, rounded, nicely finished, with crystal goblets and china plates. It's like a fancy restaurant, if one on a medieval banquet theme, perhaps. Getting closer, though, I see the usual state for Tavern Three, the moldy thick residues in the cups, the intricate lace of wormholes in the tabletops, the slightly greasy skin of dried gravy on the plates. "'I arrange the cups and find the bread in the dumbwaiter. "'It's a golden crispy loaf "'which gives off a slightly sickening smell of ergot "'when you get your nose too close. "'Not much you can do to salt to decay it. "'But somehow, whoever designed this segment "'managed to make it look a bit grey and clumpy, "'as if it had been sitting in its dish "'gathering dust for years.' When did I come to this village? Well, it should be obvious by now that I'm not sure. Not only is my memory of the time before fading, I'm starting to lose my memories of the earlier parts of my time here. I think I remember thrilling adventures and deeds of daring do, dragons with opalescent bird wings and large-breasted furry women but somehow they don't seem particularly important anymore. And I'm not even sure if I do remember them. Maybe they're just more stories I made up. I don't know. But let's suppose for a minute they're real. The technologies of role-playing gaming and social networking have thus been applied to this problem. How better to make palatable a dull job such as, for instance, data entry or online sales processing than by disguising it as a game? That's hypothesis two. That I'm a game addict. It makes sense, really. Statistically speaking, I can't be anyone important. And my image of myself as heroic scientist fades when I try to remember anything scientific, anything at all bar a vague image of being sick when asked to dissect a rat in a school classroom, surrounded by sneering teenagers. It would make sense, if the world was doomed, that many people would go in for escapism, desperate to deny the increasing squalor and privation of the time before. Or maybe, even if the world isn't doomed. There'd be people who'd want to escape their existences anyway. Locking themselves into MMORPGs, wiring their brains into the Internet, choosing to go out in an electric fugue of onanism. Maybe I am a scientist. I seem to know a lot of ten-dollar words. This story is starting to fade, though details are still vivid. The things I remember most are trivial, idiosyncratic ones. I remember with some embarrassment going through a phase of looking like an elf and having a cute-winged cat creature as a pet. And I think I remember creating a virtual lover. It wasn't a very good creation, weirdly doll-like and full of clichés. But I still find my mind going back to it during the strangest moments of sexual frustration. Then again, maybe these are memories from some MMORPG from the time before, back when I was that teenager being sick over the starry-eyed rat corpse or the heroic scientist who maybe wasn't all that heroic after all. I don't know. Once in the virtual work environment, the worker themselves develops a fictional metaphor for their job whose components replace the actual labor itself in the participants' perceptions, while the outcome from the customer point of view is the same. Most participants, perhaps unsurprisingly, reported developing some kind of quest narrative, reframing their work in terms of a fulfilling search for a crucial goal, imagining themselves as fantasy heroes battling monsters, or as brilliant scientists saving the planet. A small number chose battle metaphors or sexual orgies, but, while unusual, these are not outside of the scope of the normal human psyche. One thing I'm sure of, though, is that I'm still alone in here. When I tell myself the game story, it always runs that the game started off with lots and lots of people. But then there were fewer and fewer of them. No enemies to defeat or friends to travel with. Eventually, even the dragons and the furry women disappeared. I catch a glimpse sometimes of things I think are dragons, on clear days, spiraling around a mountain peak. But I think they're background effects. The furry women exist only in my occasional fantasies which is, in itself, one reason to doubt the game hypothesis. If I could still create virtual lovers, I would surely be doing so, if only for the company. And at some point I got bored, or discouraged, wandering through the wilderness, and locked myself in the village. Out the tavern door again, hearing it bang behind me, no time to waste in closing it or locking it. Besides, It's not like there's anyone to steal anything, and the animals seem to stay away from the taverns. Even if they did steal anything, it'd probably just replenish. Out along the snowy trail, feet crunching, feeling the cold through the soles of my boots and the weight of the rifle on my back, and hearing that almost tinkly stillness that you get on really cold nights. The one thing I remember... I mean, really remember, about the place I came from? It got cold sometimes, very cold, sometimes for a long time, but I don't think it was cold all the time, not like here, where it's always winter, always winter and never Christmas. That's a phrase I remember from before though not where it's from. A movie, maybe. Just that it's a lot like this village here. I don't really know what purpose the village serves in terms of the game. If it is a game, mustn't discount hypothesis one. A lack of aptitude for high school biology doesn't mean I couldn't be, say, a physicist as a whole. I think I remember that there were little quests programmed in that you would have to go on. Some troll would pop up from under a bridge, and you couldn't cross it unless you went off and spent days finding three goats to sacrifice to it. That sort of thing. In the context of the game, they were usually mildly diverting, and served to add a bit of drama to whatever quest you happened to be on or else to pass the time between challenges, quests, and adventures. When I think about it, it's pretty obvious to me that this is what that once was, that players could earn points, or kudos, or something, by solving the mysteries of the taverns. Perhaps they were trapped in the village until they figured out how to defeat the the whatever-it-is-in-the-dark. Early trials have proved successful. 88% of the subjects at test sites Alpha, Beta, and Gamma, a call center for an international power utility, an online retailer, and a shipping and logistics firm, reported exciting and fulfilling self-generated experiences, with 70% showing a distinct rise in job satisfaction, and 33% of these, the employees of Gamma, Despite a wage cut and threat of redundancy during the period of testing, 93% of subjects proved capable of detaching themselves from the fantasy without incident, and of the remaining 7%, 5% were able to recover without counseling. We would recommend that all workers applying for a job in a firm employing these kinds of virtual self-generated systems be psychologically screened to improve response rates. It's actually not a bad place to be stuck, most of the time. It's quiet and peaceful. Food is plentiful. The animals are just clever enough to be a challenge to hunt, but stupid enough that I never really go hungry. Similar with the plant life. Every so often, just when I start craving roast vegetables... There's a small daytime thaw, and voila, I'm up to my knees in beetroots. Nutrition's not much of an issue here, anyway, but humans like the illusion of variety. In between, I keep my cottage fixed up. I create nice new things for it. For a while, I was into labor-saving devices, but lately I haven't seen the point. Brightly colored, cubist-inspired murals for the walls are my current thing. They're a nicely rebellious contrast to the kitsch medievalism. But I've been getting bored with them and might try snow sculptures out front instead. I explore the other cottages, at first looking for clues, but lately just admiring the architecture and design. Even having to do the tavern challenges at random intervals has its advantages. It keeps things sharp and exciting, provides the sense that there's something to work for, that I'm not living here rent-free. The remaining 2% all experienced an unexpected effect. While none previously gave evidence of any unusual neuroses, it proved impossible to remove them from the self-generated setting. Those removed exhibited signs of severe post-traumatic stress disorder, catatonia, lack of responsiveness, and occasional incidents of serious violence. Though that's hypothesis three, that I'm an application, a virtual creature. I belong to the game, that my function is to run the quest, that the humans have abandoned the game, or maybe all died out, and I'm just repeating my function over and over at intervals in some kind of computer bank system, until the power runs out or gets switched off, and who knows how many years that'll be. The fact that I've got a few human memories, that goddamn rat, the university with its parties and graduate students, creating a virtual lover, I mean, why would an app bother? And possibly a knowledge of the outside world. Cubist art? Movie trivia? Even little things like what wool is and how you shoot a rifle is problematic for this hypothesis, but not insurmountable. Maybe they were programmed into me deliberately to give me more human character and make me more real for the players. I don't know if I ever really saw Blade Runner, but I know it exists, and that's the referent. Or maybe they were programmed into me by accident, that I've got a few real memories from my creator, or my testers, or someone who played the game sometime, which got embedded in me. The fact that these memories are so fragmentary supports this hypothesis. But then again, if I'm an app, I'm a pretty damn introspective one. And if I am one, then it's a non-starter, as I can't do anything to change my situation. So compelling as this story is, it's the one I can only tell myself for so long. The most successful solution appeared to be to allow them to remain permanently within the virtual work frame, continuing to operate productively within what is presumably a happy, anxiety-free, positive environment for them. The fourth tavern is weird. "'gives me the creeps every time I go into it. "'It looks much like all the others from the outside. "'Some sort of kitsch medieval thatch, "'stone, wooden doors. "'But on the inside, it's all crystal lines, "'stuff that's hard to look at. "'Like the walls, the cups, the utensils, "'the drinking bottles, everything "'is all transparent or translucent.' or just plain not there. Like you'd imagine aliens with floating spaceships made out of light would have. Or maybe like somebody didn't have time to finish it. Like somebody sketched out the inside of a tavern in raw data, but didn't bother to put in any textures, bits and pieces to make it real. The artifacts even feel funny. The bread feels oddly gelatinous to the touch and the drink has a faintly preservative smell, like strawberries in formaldehyde. The cups and plates feel soft, unpleasant, like they're made out of cellophane wrap. The feeling of weirdness isn't helped by the sensation that the thing, the feeling of dread, is almost upon me, that I'm working against the clock, that it's faster than last time, as I hurry to get the cups into their pentangle, To find the bread, where the hell is the bread? There it is, and the salt, and then the drink, and I'm decanting the odd-smelling fluid into the last glass with a curious hiss, when suddenly I feel it vanish. Just like that. Like an alarm being silenced, or a crying baby ceasing. I know that when I go outside, it'll be dawn. I make my way back to my cottage slowly, enjoying the sunrise. It's one of the perks of living here. And if it's a game, someone's really gone to a lot of effort to make the weather effects beautiful. After I've slept it off, I might go for a walk in the woods, or check my traps, or maybe see what I can do about fixing that chimney. The day after, if the weather's good... I might work on my project to set up a fish trap under the waterfall in the creek. Or I might set out on one of my occasional attempts to make it to the nearest mountain. I always wind up turning back, but it's the trying that matters. While the Ethics Committee and the families of the affected individuals raised some concerns about this, the owners of the firms and the research funding body generally agreed that the 2% figure was a negligible risk factor, and, indeed, might be seen as a positive outcome given the increased productivity such individuals showed. There are a few more hypotheses. One is the religious cult story, that this is the afterlife, which is untestable and overly metaphysical, and I can never settle on whether it's heaven, lovely sunrises, lots of peace and quiet, "'meaningful if incomprehensible work to do? "'Or hell, with loneliness and frustration "'and dark, brooding spirits "'forcing me into repetitive action? "'A corollary, that it's some protracted "'afterlife experience in the mind of a dying person? "'Referent Jacob's Ladder. "'Either I or the person who programmed me "'must have liked movies. "'They keep coming up in my head.' which is also unverifiable and also unlikely. Stories about dying are always about letting go, and I've let go of everything bar the quest, which I physically can't stop happening. Then there's the scary one, which is that none of this applies, that I just exist, being here, going through these routines over and over because they give me a sense of well-being, making up these hypotheses about my purpose and stories about the end of the world or games or movies or afterlives, because they give me justification. A further study is being done to determine whether this kind of total immersion program might be useful for the treatment of certain psychological disorders. Which brings me to the hypothesis, which comes back to me more and more frequently these days, that there is no virtual world, no real world, no apocalypse, no taverns, no quest, no game, no players, no university, no scientists, no rat, no teenagers, no me even. That the only thing which exists are the stories. All the stories are true and not true and are the only thing there actually is. The project has thus been given approval to be offered on a wider commercial basis. I would like to congratulate all the participants and wish you all success on future developments. The more I think about it, the more it makes sense. And sometimes that frightens me, because if I let myself believe that, then there really will be nothing left of the world, or me, at all.
1: There you go. Big thank you. do again. forget, copyright is Fiona Moaz and Julie C. Day. Thank you so much. A fantastic story and a fantastic narration. That is it. Starship Zoas put to bed. 221. It's where I need to go. But before that, do us a favour. Support the show, man. Banging on me drum there. Buys a pint. That's it. If you like what I do, buys a pint. If you like what we do, sir, say, buys a pint. Go over to patreon.com, whatever it is. There's links on the show and support starship over so and all the other fine shows out there it uh we need to keep going and we need to kind of be funded so that would be fantastic if you just be kind enough that's all you're doing buying us a drink if you like what we do get us a drink simple as you know what i mean well, i'd buy you one straight away you know what i mean you'd have a bloody lemon sip today, mind you until next week then just like to say good night from me Can survive this terrible ordeal?
0: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without
1: completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... ...Sorting Sofa. Evaluation procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will be opened in 3... ...2...